Hey, this is Dr. Bill Janishak, and welcome to the Conquering Stress Podcast. Today's I'm so excited. Um, our little old podcast has a world famous dude on it today, Dr. Robert McDonald. Here, uh, Dr. McDonald is a foundational NLP practitioner and uh, creator of the Destiny Technique. As you know, I've talked about NLP. And uh, this is truly one of the, the pioneers. He's been doing this for over 30 years. And I'm, I'm just so excited to have, have him here. And nobody explains the insights like he does. So uh, we're going to talk about, as we've talked about before, stress is physical, chemical, and emotional. Uh, you know, my background is in movement, neurology, functional neurology, functional medicine, detox, all the stuff that we can do to the body, and we have profound, profound results doing that. But stress is physical, chemical, and emotional. And it was a hard pill for me to swallow going on that I could do everything great in the practice. I could do perfect. Patients can do everything that, that I asked them to do and take every supplement, do every exercise, show up to that, and still not get the results that they wanted. I've been getting searching and really started going into the emotional component or the mind component because one of the things that we have to do in order to do the exercises, take the supplements, doing everything physically that we have to do is have the mental thing to follow through on what we're supposed to be doing to get over that. So uh, if you've been a long-time listener, you've, you've heard me talk about uh, the mindset a lot, uh, philosophy. But one of my favorite things, the most profound things that have happened in my life was introduce or introduction to uh, neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP. And Robert, how long, when did you come to this practice? Well, I, I learned about NLP in the 1970s. No, when did you come into my practice? When, in, when did oh. we meet? Uh, three years ago? It must four? be three years, yeah. So I, I just want to talk to the story. So I get this new patient, this nice guy that's in back there, and he sees that my little old uh, NLP practitioner, and he starts talking, well, I did NLP. You know, we hear about like that. And he starts talking, and he's talking like I've never heard anybody talk about NLP. Like there was an intimate knowledge, and he's telling me everything about what he's done and and you know how he works and in the history of this i'm like this dude's something else so like all good practitioners i googled him <laughs> and we found out that i had in my midst was the robert mcdonald uh, so dr mcdonald uh, um say hi to all the, all the tens of the listeners that yeah. we have. <laughs> Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, both of you. Each it's and great every to one see of you. So, um, give everybody a kind of a background. Of, well, first, background on who you are, what you've done. Oh, well, uh, I've been involved with uh, personal change work uh, since 1970 when I led my first uh, communication skills workshop in Southern California. But in the mid-70s, neurolinguistic programming was being invented. It was named in 1976 by Richard Bandler and John Grinder. And uh, unfortunately, they named it neurolinguistic programming, which makes it kind of awkward. People say, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? But uh, it just simply means um, how to create step-by-step -step procedures, which is programming, 
through language to affect uh, neurology or the brain. Um, they didn't talk about, and still don't talk about the mind, they talk about the brain, so they said we want to affect uh, the neurological structures through what we say to ourselves in our mind's ear, what we see in our mind's eye, uh, what we feel in the body, and uh, they claimed uh, that you, you could actually change your emotional life in the twinkling of an eye if you knew how to do it. So they studied the finest, uh, most effective psychotherapist in the world and uh, identified the different structures that uh, those therapists were using for personal change work. And uh, when they named, uh, named NLP Neuro Linguistic Programming, um, they defined it as the study of the structure of subjective experience, which is very strange. Whenever I heard that, I kind of went into a little trance because too many ofs in the sentence. But it means that they believe there's such a thing as subjective experience or personal experience or mental experience, and that it has a structure. And what NLP does is it studies that structure. And then it creates methodologies for altering uh, the, representationals, the representations that create our emotional life. So uh, NLP uh, was fascinating to me when I got involved with it. Um, and it was fascinating because I'd already had a bachelor's degree in psychology and already had a teaching credential in English uh, and language. And I understood the link between the two. And, but NLP made it explicit, very explicit. I was very happy about that. And, um, and by the time I became a master practitioner of NLP, I also had a master's of science degree in counseling and mental health. So everything kind of fit together really well. And I was interested in how uh, NLP could help uh, resolve personal suffering, how it could change emotions. I, I got a question. So back when NLP was first started, they were making outrageous claims, right? Mm. Yes, the most outrageous claims. And so how did the general, the professional, the, the, um, the therapeutic or psychology mm -hmm. profession think of NLP at the time? In the very beginning, uh, the, the psychotherapeutic community was very, very interested in it. Uh, Daniel Coleman wrote about it and said, well, this seems to be the, like the, the cutting edge of all psychotherapy that found the secrets uh, of the mind. Uh, it it, it um, relatively rapidly went downhill from then, from then on in the, within the world of psychology. Uh, for example, uh, I taught neurolinguistic programming at the University of San Francisco um, and I was like the only person in the nation teaching it in, at a university uh, level. And I was lucky to do that because the psychotherapeutic community was regarding NLP as just a bunch of hokum. And that's because they were unable to um, uh, scientifically reproduce what brilliant uh, NLP practitioners were able to do. So there was a big struggle with it. Also, Richard and John were kind of like their own worst uh, advertisement because they, from time to time they would... Uh, insult the therapeutic community by saying things like, well, you know, you must only be interested in kind of like a, a voyeur. You want to hear all the facts of the person's personal life before you help them. Whereas uh, Richard and John, the ones who created NLP, said, listen, we can help people without hearing all those facts. We can help them by changing the structure uh, that's creating the emotional upset. So uh, NLP, in by and large, in the United States has a relatively uh, negative uh, uh, reputation within the world of psychology. Although I understand today, more people may begin, may starting to think it has uh, some value. Whereas I've noticed it's had value because I was traditionally trained in psychology. I was always interested in and curious about anything that was effective. And you're right. In the first book, 
one of the first books that they did that was popular called Frogs and the Princes, it claimed that uh, NLP could resolve uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Any traumatic memory could be resolved in one session. And that was a shocking, unbelievable... You can imagine what it would be like. Yeah, because, you know, like tonight we'll talk about uh, stress and anxiety in the class that we'll do in a few minutes, but it's like stress itself is in the, is in the language, the diagnosis, post-traumatic stress disorder. And what that means if we, in regular language is after a painful experience, a person experiences stress in a disordered way. That disordered means in somebody else's opinion, they're not doing well. <laughs> so so it just means after a, a painful event, the person has a memory and it still bothers them. Well, once we understand that PTSD or traumatic memories that are active in a person's life are simply a result of the memory. They're not a result of the event, the traumatic event. That's not what causes the upset in the person's body and emotional life. Uh, it's, it's the memory of the event that's causing the upset in the person's body and emotional life. When I say in the person's body, it's just as you said in the beginning, there is a chemical and physical um, support or factor. There are the factors, everything that the mind, when we notice stuff about stress and anxiety, it all has chemical and physical basis. So when we, if we're able to alter uh, the chemicals, if we're able to alter the physical body in a way with chiropractic, and supplements and stuff, and that changes the emotional life, we are happy. Um, but if it doesn't, that may mean that we need to help that person by working at the level of emotions, which are caused by representations. And that's the, the kind of the uh, odd thing about neurolinguistic programming, or I don't know if it's odd, it's just kind of difficult for many people to pay attention long enough to get this, that really your mind is made of pictures and sounds and feelings. And so when you see a mental representation, you see an image of a car accident, for example, from your memory, if you see it in a certain way, it will upset you. And it'll cause physiological change, chemical change, and your body will change and tighten, your muscles will tighten, and perhaps uh, your body will need to be adjusted uh, from a chiropractor in order to handle that consequence. But what if we could change the mind itself directly? That means we'd change what the person is seeing in their mind's eye that means the way they remember the painful event of seeing a car accident. And if that can be done directly and easily, why not do it? And what I've been doing for a very long time now, I've taught uh, these methods worldwide throughout uh, you know, Europe and the United States and South America and Canada and throughout Japan and China and all that, uh, New Zealand and Australia. I've been teaching people exactly how to do that. And, it, and it's really not, you know, the, the astounding results that I get is not, are not about me. They're, they're about knowing how, and anyone well, that, can know that how. Well, that brings up, I have a question with that. So earlier you had, you had said that um, when NLP first came out, mm -hmm. it, they couldn't reproduce it. So is mm -hmm. NLP actually an art form, or is it a mm -hmm. procedure? Well, it's a little bit of, of both, because... It's like chiropractic, then. Yes, like chiropractic. There's a procedure, and then how... And an art. It's how... how how to address a client. Let me, let me say that if I want to help some, somebody comes to me because they want some assistance, I can't help them at all if, if, if they don't trust me. And so there's, a, there's an art to increasing the likelihood of being trusted. And that means that a person who wants to engage in true uh, help, counseling, being a counselor, a coach, a therapist, 
they have to be very aware of the, the fear that most people carry in their lives, the fear of other people, the fear of being humiliated, the fear of talking about themselves, and to, to address the other person in front of them with kindness and compassion and understanding, helping the other person to feel that they're in a safe place. So the, the art, a lot of it of that is the art. Another part of the art has to do with when I'm talking to somebody and they're telling me that they are really upset because uh, they, um, they were raped as a child, I'm aware that that is true for them, that they think that that's the source of their upset. I'm aware that the source of their upset is actually the memory of it, and the memory has a form. And that because I'm aware of that, uh, I can then wait until it's time to help them to change that memory. And that's an artistic structure, it's, it's timing. Uh, if I walk right in and say, well, really, it's your memory, they'll, they'll claim rightly that I'm not a, a, talking to them in such a way that engenders trust. They don't feel like I really care about them. So I spend my time waiting, noticing uh, that when they're ready to, to change it, they feel safe enough, that it's the structure that needs to change, and that I can help them to do that gently and easily. So there is an art uh, to neurolinguistic programming and uh, to, there's a science to it in that literally neurolinguistic programming is a science of the mind. It's how the mind works. And so if I don't know how the mind works, if I don't have that scientific understanding of it, I won't know uh, what to do with the person's upset. I'll have no idea what to do with it. Um, but I'm aware that um, the way the person is remembering a painful event, the way they do it, like if they see it in color or black and white or large or far away or close up, determines their emotional experience. I'm, I'm quite aware of the scientific structure of that. But without the art of it, well, then I'll treat them like a machine. And if I treat them like a machine, nothing will get done, really. I won't be very effective. There are, there are thousands of NLP practitioners now, most of whom do not know what they're doing. And that's because they haven't been working with individual clients, individuals, couples, families, in such a way as to master the ability to create uh, rapport, to establish uh, the goal of the client, to find out what the client wants, to notice what's in the way of the client getting what they want, and then to gently introduce uh, those tools and methods that will, that will give the client uh, what they want. So uh, that's my main thing. I'm interested in the resolution of unnecessary human suffering. So I studied NLP because it had the finest tools involved, but it didn't have the finest understanding of emotions, it, it, and it had lousy understanding of, of emotions. So I uh, integrated uh, the, the sword of technology of NLP with the, with, the, with the heart of compassion, of deep listening, understanding, caring, and spirituality, and that's why I created the Destination Method, which is an outgrowth of NLP, it transcends and includes NLP. Yeah, but it couldn't exist without NLP. Well, how, how long ago did you um, invent or uh, name, I guess? I guess that would be a better yeah. one. Once you had to finally... Sometime in the 90s, I, I, I began to call it the destination method. Um, I, I began, I was so struck with the need for integrating uh, compassion and uh, technology. I, I spoke about that almost immediately when I became an NLP trainer. Uh, Steve Andreas and Connie Ray Andreas certified me as an NLP trainer many, many years ago, and I trained it everywhere, and I worked with the creators of NLP, um, and then I began to develop a lot of NLP tools, methods, 
that are, that are now taught and used worldwide. Uh, I was quite aware that of the what it missed, what it lacked, and it lacked heart, it lacked love, it lacked compassion, it lacked a moral compass. Well, uh, a lot of people in the you asked earlier, a lot of people in the psychological world knew that it lacked a moral compass, and so they threw it away. What I did is, even though I was uh, had already had all that education in psychology, I was aware that it lacked a moral compass. But what I did is, I it's my metaphor is that I I went to this big cesspool. And a lot of people were reaching into it and then walking away and vomiting. What I did is I reached into the cesspool. I got a hold of something. I washed it off, washed it clean, and I found a diamond. And the diamond is the understanding of the structure of subjective experience. The diamond is understanding that our emotional lives are a result of our what we see in our mind's eye and hear in our mind's ear. That the source of our emotional life is accessible and that we can change our emotional life in the twinkling of an eye uh, should we want to. Well, that, that, so, like, like I said, I've I've practiced NLP um, in my small way for for some time, and it is fascinating. Yeah. So there's people listening right now, and this may be the first time they've ever heard of NLP that it's possible mm -hmm. um, that these types of changes are possible. What would you suggest to somebody that at this point? First time they've ever heard of it. They've never done anything, and now they're curious. How do you? Now maybe not proves the uh, the best word, but how do you how do you open somebody up so that they can experience more, mm -hmm. test the waters? That yeah, you suggest. I, I understand that. Well, um, there are several ways to do that. If I'm just having a casual conversation with somebody. And the person says, uh, "Well, what do you mean, change your mind? What's that got? To, what's that got to do? What's, what do these mental pictures have to do with my emotional life?" Um, what I do is I, in a casual kind of way, talk to them, ask them if if they ever have um, we don't do editing, heard a, so heard, a, heard a bell ring. Yeah, <laughs> no. if they'd ever if they'd ever remember a movie called Jaws. Now, many people remember the movie called Jaws. It was a shark in it, this big shark, and it scared the heck out of everybody, and it ate people and all that. And many people will remember that, but those who don't, I'd have to use another movie. But Jaws uh, is a movie where where people go and they sit in the audience and they feel absolutely terrified. And then I'd say, well, do you remember what was terrifying? And they go, yeah, the shark. And I go, you know, it seems like the shark is what's ter terrifying. But notice that when you think about the shark now, and you see it in your mind's eye, it has a size. It's gigantic. I said, so now all you have to do is think of the film, any scene in the film that was terrifying to watch, like the shark is going to go eat some swimmer, uh, if you see the shark coming out of the water and all. Just do one thing and one thing only. Change the size of the shark to the size of a minnow. Make it a little tiny, tiny fish, a little tiny thing, and, play, and imagine the movie with the shark being, you know, half an inch long. Well, what happens is people are no longer afraid. You're not going to be afraid of this tiny little shark. Nobody's going to be afraid of that. What makes the movie frightening, aside from the music and the setup and the context, is the is the very very tiny is a very lar large shark with big teeth. Make it small, and the and that memory will no longer be frightening. The movie is not frightening unless it is of a certain size. So. Uh, this is true of our emotional life. Our, our memories will frighten us if they're of a certain size, if they're a certain distance from us, if they're in color or black and white, 
if we alter these uh, factors, a person's emotional life will change in the twinkling of an eye. So that sometimes I'll enter into you know th that brief discussion to see if, if it might make a difference. A person might say, "Oh, I, I know what you mean." Um, and then if that doesn't do it, then I can just say, "Well, um, have you ever? Uh, do you ever remember being in a roller coaster?" And they'll go, "Oh yeah," and most of them will will be able to access the memory of being in a roller coaster and going down the slant, uh, slanted hill there and feeling really a rush and so on. I said, well, you know what that feels like because you can feel the coldness of the, the bar that you're holding onto in your little cart. I said, but, but notice this. What happens if instead of being yourself, you have exactly the memory except that you see yourself in that car on the, about a half a mile away. Very, very far away you see a big white roller coaster track and then you see somebody's in the roller coaster car and it happens to be you and somebody else and they go down the, the hill and round and round I said do you have any difference in your emotional reaction and the vast majority of people say yeah if I see it if I see myself in the car roller coaster car far away I don't feel the upset I don't feel the thrill of it I don't feel any of it I'm just watching I said, yeah that's exactly right you altered your emotional life by altering your mind and this is the key structure that, that the mind creates emotions. The, your mind and my mind creates emotions. If we can remember that the mind creates emotions, what we need to do is find out, well, what is my mind doing such that I have this emotional experience? And so we go, oh, well, it's seeing things in a certain way or hearing things in a certain way. So uh, what it is that creates emotions and actions are thoughts. And most of the time when I'm working with clients, I can simply go to the thought and help the person change that thought, the pictures and sounds, and therefore change their emotional life and their actions, changing the results in their life. But sometimes, even changing those pictures won't change the emotion. And when that happens, it's because the emotions have kind of solidified, the images have solidified into a belief. And that means that a belief has to change. So beliefs are, are changeable just as thoughts are changeable. Beliefs are just actually uh, a multitude of thoughts that are aggregate uh, coming together and they create a belief. So when we have enough enough thoughts, they'll uh, sort themselves into a belief and then the belief will hold hold each of those thoughts. And no matter it's what like we if, do. If, 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 because I believe in Santa Claus. Yeah. So I believe in Santa Claus because my mom told me Santa Claus mm -hmm. was coming. Mm -hmm. I saw Santa Claus at the store. I saw the, the things on TV. Mm -hmm. So I would have an aggregate. I have had all this evidence to build up that there's a Santa Claus. Mm -hmm. And I, I get up there. So that's how we create a belief. And belief is, a, yeah, is that it's a, a whole lot of um, a combination of a bunch of thoughts that fit together and have some not only utilitarian value, but some value that makes a person feel better, safer perhaps. So when the person has a belief is a generalization based on a whole lot of thoughts. And that generalization uh, w will prevent people from changing their thoughts. So for example, if somebody says, well, I believe that I'm stupid about math, that belief will prevent the person from thinking about, I think I'll go down and buy a book on math. They, they won't think that because their belief is it's pointless. So they, they would they won't that actually won't their thought won't come about uh, as to uh, anything that would contradict that belief. So what's needed if I want to alter uh, my behavior around math books, I'd need to change that belief. So what happens? We can make changes at the level of behavior, 
we can tell a person to just sit there and not stand up. We can we can change make uh, change the level of behavior in the body. We can make changes to the level of of thoughts and emotions. We can make changes at the level of beliefs. We can also make changes higher up the creative order in the levels, uh, the identity level, and then soul and spirit. Well, the creative order is part of the destination method and not part of neurolinguistic programming. Neurolinguistic programming does not have a creative order and doesn't have anything to do with soul or spirit in, in depth. So the destination method, I made sure that it's a transpersonal, meaning spiritual, coaching strategy, which allows people, if they want to deal with spiritual things, they can. Not everybody does, but if they want to, they can. And what we do is we say, okay, what is the simplest, easiest intervention that we can make so the person gets what they want? Destination method, I'm like a taxi driver. I want to help people to get from where they are to where they want to go, using the simplest, easiest method uh, available and with kindness and respect. And that's, that's So when, when you're working with somebody that's, well, maybe it's a question you should ask first. When someone comes to you, now, you're the Robert McDonald. Um, do you come, I mean, do you get a lot of NLP virgins who've never heard of it and you're the first opportunity? Or do you hear, or most of your clients have either heard of you or they've heard you speak or one of your books or? Usually I, uh, people will uh, call me because somebody tells them about the results that they got. And then when they ask that friend, well, how did that happen? The friend says, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and because, because they honestly don't know, they just go, I don't know, just go to the guy, you're going to get what you want. Uh, they rarely talk about neurolinguistic programming. But if a person comes with an NLP background, typically I have to disabuse them of a lot of uh, convictions that they have or structures that they have. Just and they drink the Kool-Aid too, yeah. too, too, much, too yeah. fast and yeah. too furious. But, but, but also there's good things. If they have an NLP background, then I can... Um, Take my, I can skip over some things because they, they understand something about the way that uh, the mind works. They might have some different language, but something about it. But to, you know, normally it's it's word of mouth that people do that, or they'll they'll see my videos. I have thirty videos on uh, on YouTube, twenty eight videos on YouTube, and I have uh, my website, and people see me doing some work or talking about a certain topic, and they're interested. People are typically not so interested in coming to see me if what their their whole thing is about raw raw motivation, make a million dollars by next Tuesday. They typically are not uh, interested in me because I'm really interested in the resolution of the suffering that's in the way of their having a million dollars by next Tuesday. Uh, my, I'm, I'm so not, rather than so a lot, sometimes NLP gets a bad rap because people are using it as manipulation. Oh, definitely. And that that kind of goes back to. It's a, NLP is amoral mm -hmm. in its sense. It's mm -hmm. sort of like it is. Uh, chemistry is amoral. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. The same thing. Or physics, because I can use a catapult to either uh, spread a bomb or, or send you know, some food chocolate somewhere. bunnies right. or wherever I, I want. Yeah. So the destination method has added that morality yeah, back, back into it. And you're more of a, the, the healer. And it's, it's interesting with um, you know, uh, marketing or sales, you know, I, it was funny when you first came in and said, Oh I, yeah, I know NLP. And I'm just like, okay, great. Another weekend warrior guy, not mm -hmm. knowing who you were. And then, um, because I hear that a lot. So, Oh yeah, I, I took a, a class. A guy came in and, mm -hmm. and showed me how to match and mirror and mm -hmm. okay, I'm an expert now, but it's interesting because there's very few people that have gone through training that 
actually work with clients yeah. all the time on real stuff. Because, so if, if you didn't make a million dollars, you could still have a pretty good life. Certainly. But if, if you're living in stress, if you're living in fear, mm. you're living with a memory, well, you're living in a memory, and it's creating all these things that stops you from doing whatever brings you joy. Mm. And then you, you, you compound that with a belief that it's good enough for him and him, but I'm not worthy. I can't do that. That has to be one of the saddest yeah. states of life that, that you could possibly. Yeah. It's a, it, there's so much human suffering, and we can see that with the opioid addiction problem we're having across the nation. Uh, that, that I'm convinced it comes from a, a general state of meaninglessness uh, that, that people are struggling with uh, what is real and what is meaningful and so uh, we have uh, so uh, we have so scientifically looked at the world that we say well you know there is no meaning to it the scientific attitude is quite clear nothing means anything it's just, does this work or does it not work? Can we predict it or can we not? And that's the nature of science. And it's very good that we have this scientific attitude and perspective and we have the scientific method because from that we get washing machines and airplanes and cars and electricity and the internet. And It comes not from a moral attitude or an ethical attitude. It doesn't come from that. It comes from, does this work? And the problem with adopting science as a, as a way to be in the to live in the world, is that it cannot uh, provide us with uh, what what is to, to be established as the good. What is the good? In science, there is no such thing as the good. There's only the effective or the ineffective, and you know the useful or the non-useful. Your your objectives find yes. Yeah, that's that's it. But it's not. But there is no good. There's not like one thing. In fact, science will say one thing's not better than another. One's just more useful than another. A storm is not better than a calm day. It's just a calm day is more useful for fishing. Yes. So, but then we're not going to say one's better. And so we can't say one behavior is better than another. Whereas human beings who've been raised with uh, some moral consciousness will say, well, wow, I think it's better to be kind than not to be kind. I, I think kindness is important. Uh, so... What I did with neurolinguistic programming is I utilized the foundation, one of the foundational structures in NLP are called perceptual positions, which is seeing, I have a position, I see out of my own eyes, I can see out of another person's eyes, I can see objectively at both myself and another. And this, is, this is basic NLP. Basic NLP, the three points of view, three perceptual positions, self, other, and observer. And since that's basic to it, I began to play with it and explore it and understand it. It was created and established by John Grinder in 1984 uh, at the Jack Tar Hotel up in San Francisco. And he was saying, it's, I have my own point of view. There's another, I can take another person's point of view. I can observe myself and another. Uh, and there wasn't any morality or ethics connected to that. NLP uh, really isn't interested in morality or ethics. It's interested in what works. Well, I'm glad about that because I know a lot of things that work as a result of that. But here's one of the things that I learned is that from my own point of view, I have I began to establish the possibility of certain moral structures 
honesty. I can't be honest unless I have my own point of view. And, and I learn honesty by having my own point of view and, and sharing what it is I noticed out loud so that there's a, a congruence between what I'm saying and what I'm doing, what I'm saying and what I'm thinking. And that honesty, that congruence, is a moral uh, connection. There's a moral connection between that and being dishonest, which means to lie about what I feel, what I want, what I think. I just don't tell. I say, some, I, I, say I feel things I don't feel. I want things I don't want. So taking my own point of view is the basis upon which I can learn honesty, a moral structure. And there are seven uh, on, the, on the pathway uh, of, of, of these seven levels of awareness. There are, there are seven of these virtues, a virtue. Honesty is a virtue. Authenticity is a virtue. And it's learned from my own point of view. Empathy and compassion is, a, is another uh, virtue and is a moral truth. I can learn empathy by putting myself in the shoes of another person. I can use learn compassion by putting myself in the shoes of another person, imagining being them. I learned that I'm not the only person in the world. Another person exists, and they have feelings. Oh, my goodness. I can't learn empathy unless I leave my point of view. So when I learn, when I take the point of view of another, I learn this profoundly important evolution of, of, um, of ethics. I go to the next level from authenticity to humility. That humility, meaning that I'm not the only person in the world, and the empathy and compassion and understanding that comes from taking another person's point of view, that's a fantastic ability. And when people do that, it's great. But what if they don't? What if they stay away from it? What is the opposite end uh, of, of empathy? And it, you know, we, what happens is it's overabundance of it. I become uh, an, an addict. An, an addict, addic all addictions come from this problem at the uh, taking another person's point of view. And it's like when I'm completely enmeshed with another person, I lose my sense of self. I confuse my identity with another. This, this is a serious problem, particularly a serious problem today. Addiction, which means slavery, is from that. So anyway, I learned authenticity, humility, and then from the third point of view, I, I, I learned the possibility of not only beholding what's going on, but also mercy. Authenticity, humility, mercy. These came out of the foundation of NLP. NLP didn't discover it because NLP was not committed uh, to understanding what human beings go through when it comes to, to morality and ethics. I am. I've always been. So what I did was I went, oh, it's not possible to explain authenticity, humility, and mercy without having the NLP understanding of first, second, and third, self, other, and observer. Wow. Then I realized that it went on. There's the, it so goes, like where it stopped and then you kind of continued. I kept going on and on, and I'm really happy I did. But So I, NLP is a, is a absolutely magnificent toolbox. It's just that I use, uh, I, I have a different attitude about it, which has to do with the, the grounding in human relations. Uh, whereas NLP is not, NLP is grounded in science. Well, you know, that's, that's interesting. So that's actually probably a good stopping point for us, us right now. Mm -hmm. But I would love to have you come back and kind of explain uh, a little bit more. So to everybody out there, this is just kind of like a fascinating uh, subject because, like I said, stress is physical, chemical, and emotional. And that's the point. Until you have a grasp, like my, my whole tool, the reason that I've done this is because you know, there's there's tools out there. You can go learn how to, to um, 
exercise and meditate to, to take you out of that moment. But it's like a warm bath or it's like pleasure. You know, as long as you're doing it, you're feeling that feeling. But when you take it away, my whole deal here is to give people the, the tools because when you go, when we go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, it will become, um, we actually have to work on ourselves, which, yeah. which is a, which is a cra crazy thing. We, we have to actually stop reacting and start acting that out. So I agree. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely have to have you back. So everybody out there, leave a comment. Tell me what you're thinking. If you have any questions, uh, next time we have Robert on, on here, we can, we can run you through, maybe answer your questions. Sure. We're happy to do that. Or if anybody wants to contact us, um, feel free to do so. All right. Till next time.